Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. Shalom, shalom. I am thrilled that you are joining us. If you're a first-timer, we're excited to have you. And if you're a return listener, then thank you for continuing to join and listen in. So we are up to Parshat Naso in the book of Bamidbar, the longest Parsha in the Torah. It's always hard to find someone who wants to do the Torah reading for Naso if they know how long it is. And a lot of rich topics. And we are blessed to be here with my friend, teacher, and colleague, Dr. Rabbi Daniel Reifman, a repeat performance. Somehow, I guess we blackmailed you into doing this again, Daniel. No, I love being here with you. Wow. You should see his expression on his face as he says that, but you have to take him at his spoken word, which actually connects us. That silly throwaway line connects us to a topic you have chosen where you would like to speak about the Nazir, the Nazarite. So please, Daniel, what caught your attention about this topic? First of all, I love this week's Parsha because it introduces us to a phenomenon that recurs over and over again in the book of Bamidbar, which is the kind of intercalation of narrative and law. The Jews are about to set out for the land of Israel. There are all sorts of instructions for how the camp is supposed to set out and how they're supposed to set up the camp. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of this narrative, we get a series of laws that don't seem to be very connected to the storyline. And one of those laws is the laws of the Nazarite. The Nazir, somebody takes a vow to be a Nazir, refrains from consuming all great products, doesn't cut their hair and doesn't become impure to a corpse for a period of 30 days. And this happens voluntarily. They take on this vow, and they're in this status, and then they have these restrictions put upon them. Totally voluntary. Somebody wants to do this. The motivation seems to be just to devote themselves to God. There's a sense that the Nazir is kadosh, that they take on added level of holiness. And we actually see this in the restriction about cutting your hair. What's so significant about your hair Hair in the ancient world was considered to be an expression or a manifestation of a person's vitality. And as their hair grows over the 30-day period, because they are considered to be holy, their hair, which is the only part of the person that significantly grows during that period, also takes on a status of holiness. I grew a lot during the period of Pesach, but not in the direction that is ideal. But let's talk about this a little bit further. So you have these restrictions that the Nazir takes on voluntarily. And, you know, you said that the hair is connected to their life vitality. They're looking for holiness. And I want to ask sort of two questions. 
What does that mean that they're looking for holiness or a holiness that they don't have already, perhaps? And why do they have to articulate it? Why the idea of taking a vow? Why can't they just try the behaviors and then see how they like it? When we think about what makes a religious person in Judaism or in general, we think about it in terms of kind of standard practices, laws. Judaism is, of course, a religion very centered around law, around a particular lifestyle that's mandated for everybody. But people are individuals, and it may be that somebody wants a particular mode of expression for their own religious sense of self. And therefore, becoming a Nazir is a way that's built into the system for them to say, hey, this is something that I want to do to devote myself more to God. This is something that I feel I want to do to shape my sense of self, to shape my religious behavior. There is, of course, a certain ascetic like a quality. Because refraining from grapes, I assume, is the assumption of wine and perhaps even limiting one's physical pleasure in a way. Limiting one's physical pleasure. And of course, we can think about it nowadays if somebody feels that they are overindulging in wine. There is something here maybe about somebody realizing that they have a problem with alcohol, for example. And therefore, the Nazir institution is built into halakha as something that somebody can say, hey, this is an already established practice that I want to take on. So it's like a jazz performance where there's this through line, but then there's this room for the individual to maybe not write their own script, but build on the given script in their own way. I can think of it that way. I want to think of it also in terms of the way that even nowadays, somebody looking to express themselves in terms of their own individuality chooses sometimes to do something positive, also chooses to refrain from doing certain things. People do this in terms of their diet. People do this in terms of other aspects of their behavior. They may feel that they or society in general is overindulging in certain pleasures, and therefore they decide to cut something out of their lives. Again, as a mode of identification, of building a sense of self. But it's interesting also, just to follow up with this point, that on the one hand, it's voluntary, but the system itself is not voluntary once one is entered in. In other words, the Torah has given us a rule book here for how one, perhaps as you put it, enhances the personal holiness in their life. This is really built into the system as a standard way to express oneself. And maybe this is simply a way for people to not have to think too hard, right? This is an institution they can readily reach for when they feel this kind of impulse in their religious life. But of course, when we think about the institution of vows in general, Nazir is only one example. It may, in fact, be a paradigmatic example. We know, for example, that in the ancient world, many people did avail themselves of this particular institution of a Nazir. But there are other kinds of vows that people took and theory that people are still able to, to use in order to, to express themselves religiously. So let's follow up on the point that you started with. I think it's very important. Why weren't the laws of the Nazir given earlier in Vayikra when it spoke about Korbanot? You know, I'm just thinking out of the box here, but you raise the idea of the narrative and the law being in a conversation here. So I'm wondering, in your mind, why is Nazir being given in the Torah within this narrative of they're about to travel to the land, pause, I'm going to tell you about the laws of the Nazareth. Earlier, I talked about Nazir as building a sense of self. And I know that's a very broad, kind of wishy-washy notion. But I really think it's very true when we think about Nazirut, about the Nazarite vow, and specifically vows in general. And the book of Bamidbar is very much about building a sense of self 
for the nation. This is where the children of Israel are about to set out for the land. They've taken certain steps toward building a sense of nationhood and building a relationship with God. But the book of Bamidbar, more than any other book in the Torah, is really a crucible of their building a sense of who they are. And as we're going to see as we go through other episodes in the book, part of that is expressed here in this concept of vows. When I think of Bamidbar, unfortunately, I often think of what the sages describe as Puranu, disasters. You have all these ways in which the wheels seem to fall off the bus, so to speak. And I'm wondering how you connect sort of these laws and institutions of vows, of Nazarite laws, coming in a context where you say the Jewish people are building their identity, but it seems over and over again it's built through really a lot of failure. It's true. It's true. And think about when somebody might take a vow to be a Nazir or some other kind of vow. Often it is in response to failure, right? They've failed in overindulging in certain pleasures. They've failed in building a meaningful relationship with God, and therefore they feel the need to avail themselves of this. Recall that the sages in the rabbinic period are not actually all that enamored of the institution of Nazir or vows in general. And they warn us about this kind of thing, about not taking vows that an ascetic lifestyle is not necessarily a religious ideal. So when we think about failure, yes, I totally agree with you that Nazir is in some sense maybe a response to failure and maybe also leading somebody in a direction that could be good for certain periods in someone's life or in response to certain things that are happening, but in other times maybe not the best direction to go in. Is there something you've noticed specifically about this location in Bamidbar about why you think this is happening here? I don't know about this specific location in Bamidbar. I have a kind of broader theory about why certain laws are here, but it really goes beyond the scope of what we can cover in a podcast. Well, give us a little bit of a hint of a what's happening. A little bit of a hint. Can I give a little bit of an ad for some of my maybe summer classes at Pardes? Of course. We love advertising for summer classes at Pardes. Well, there's a brief ad for you. But in the meantime, the notion of Safer Bamidbar having certain broader themes and thematic patterns I think is very important to appreciate. One of them is Kedusha. The Jewish people have built the Mishkan, the tabernacle. God dwells in their midst. They are constantly exposed to the presence of God as part of their daily lives, and that infuses them with the sense that they are the holy chosen people. That's a good thing. That's important for them to feel. It's important for them to understand what it means to be in a relationship with God. It also sometimes gets them into trouble. For example, if we look forward in the book of Bamidbar to the parsha we're going to read in a few weeks, parsha Korach, Korach rebels against Moshe and Aharon, and his first claim is, who put you in charge? Why should, in fact, there be anybody in charge? Ki kol haida kulam kadoshim. The whole nation is holy. So what gives you special status to tell us what to do? So this issue of holiness and hierarchy are very challenging because as each person sees themselves as holy, the implication here is that can threaten or undermine the existing system. And maybe, you know, you said before that Nazir gives a very clear and rigid structure for somebody who wants this kind of religious expression. Maybe a point of the structure is to say, okay, you want this kind of religious expression? That's fine, but here's how to do it. Which kind of leads us in to the broader question of Nidarim in general, right? If we leave Nazir as a type of Nadir, 
The Torah, as we know, also leaves open the option for people to take vows and basically take ordinary mundane things that might be permitted and make them prohibited. A person vows they're not going to have dairy products. And suddenly dairy products are now like pork to them. Or the other direction, they can take vows or oaths to obligate themselves to do things. Suddenly they have extra mitzvot that nobody else has. And the power that's embedded in that. Even the Nazir, right? The Nazir, to come back to your example, by becoming a Nazirite, he obligates himself in sacrifices that have to be brought to the temple. If he fails in his vow, when he completes his vow, there's a whole ceremony. So this idea that people can build their own obligations on top of the given 613, you can understand why the sages perhaps had a lot of concern about people being given this ability to create holiness or models of religious behavior that the Torah never commanded. If we look at the way that vows are found in not only the narratives of the Book of Bamidbar, but the narratives of the Bible as a whole, uh, we see this interesting pattern of vows on the one hand being used very positively in terms of development and also negatively. So on the positive side, we can look at characters like Yaakov. Yaakov wakes up from his dream at Beit El, and he's had this tremendous vision of the ladder and the angels going up and down and God telling him that he's going to be the progenitor of a great nation. And he wakes up and he says, I'm going to devote myself to God and I'm going to give a tenth of my earnings to God. And that's a neder that he takes and he stays committed to that neder, and when he comes back to Beit El, he makes good on that neder. He brings sacrifices, they give an offering to God. So it worked. It locked him in to coming back to his past. At a very critical juncture in his character development, he's about to leave the land of Israel to go to who knows where, who knows how long. He's actually in the land of Haran for 20 years. It's a very difficult time. Also, along the way, manages to build a family. But yes, it locks him into a certain pattern, and he remains true to his commitment. So the vow helps anchor that one powerful moment into an obligation in the future that will then complete the circle. Great. We are now pro-vow, but... Wait, there's an even better example, I think, in the form, in the character of Chana. Chana is the mother of Shmuel, and the book of Shmuel, of Samuel, actually begins with his mother, Chana. Chana is barren. She comes to the tabernacle in Shiloh. She's so broken that she doesn't even offer a sacrifice. She's childless. And she goes to the tabernacle and just pours her heart out to God. She's, in fact, the first person on record to offer silent prayer. And she issues a vow. She says, God, if you give me a son, I will offer him to the temple. And in fact, her son, when he's born, becomes an acolyte in the tabernacle in Shiloh. Her character develops, and of course, she becomes the mother of one of the great prophets and the great leaders of the nation of Israel. Okay, so success story number two, but failure, <laughs> uh, most evocatively in the story of the Judge Yiftach, who, when he goes out to battle, says, I really want to succeed in this battle, and God, if you give me success, I will offer the first thing that crosses my threshold when I come home as an offering. And the thing that crosses his threshold first is his daughter. Tragedy. We don't exactly know what happens to his daughter, but it's a great tragedy. And of course, there we see how dangerous that impulse can be when you make a vow in terms that could be misinterpreted or lead to 
Disaster. Or the need to fulfill that vow becomes so dominant, you forget every other value and every other need and every other concern that might cross your path. The vow has become the total expression of your religious commitment and faith as opposed to an add-on or a piece. And you get locked into a pattern of behavior that you don't really understand the consequences of. So that brings us to you know the sages' take on vowing. It seems number one, the people in the Talmudic period are vowing all the time. And many of the contexts seem to be it's because they're angry or frustrated or they want to force somebody to do something. They're constantly forbidding benefit to one another. I won't benefit you. You can't benefit me. We can't benefit him. Right. And a lot of these vows, women are vowing against their husbands. Husbands are vowing against their wives. And there seems to be this sense that people have lost control of their speech. They're in this moment, a hot moment, so to speak. And the problem with the vow, I think, according to the sages, are people making decisions in hot moments without realizing that when the cool moment comes, they're going to regret it. And of course, along the way, you see a kind of cheapening in the value of the spoken word. Words in Jewish tradition, in halacha, are very sacred. We don't take words and promises lightly. And yes, the sage's attitude towards nidarim, towards vows, reminds us that this can be a very potent religious device, but also a very dangerous one. And so that sort of moves us in the direction of thinking about, I think, this idea of the sages resisting vows. It sort of became part of the culture not to do it, right? They were successful in their opposition. Now, whenever you ask an observant person to do something for you, the first thing you'll say is bleed netter, right? Without a vow. Will you help me tomorrow clean out my garage? I'm happy to help you. Blee netter, right? Everyone is very busy worrying about not taking a vow. We open up our Yom Kippur service, right? With Kol Nidre and worrying about those vows hanging over our heads and what it means to have a vow and Hatarat Nidarim, right? Removal of vows. Vows have become a type of religious minefield. So in a way, the sages were very successful. Your speech is very powerful. Stay far away. You can mess it up. It's true. And vows nowadays have been successfully defeated, downgraded, shall we say, <laughs> within religious tradition. But I actually want to bring it around to focus on the instance of vows in the book of Bamidbar, which is different than all the other instances of vows in the Torah. It maybe brings us around to a way that we can reincorporate this sense of religious power into our own lives nowadays. Who takes a vow in the book of Bamidbar? If we turn to chapter 21, we see that it's not any one individual, but this collective entity, this almost national polity called Yisrael. Now, almost every other instance in the Torah, when the nation is referred to, they're referred to as B'nai Yisrael or Am Yisrael or something else. In chapter 21, and almost exclusively in chapter 21, we find this entity called Yisrael. And what does it say about Yisrael? Loosely translated, the Canaanite king of Arad, who dwelled in the Negev, heard that Yisrael was coming in the way of Atarim, and he fought Yisrael and he took captives. What's the response to this loss in battle? Israel, this collective entity, takes a vow and says, if you give this nation in my hands, I will devote their cities, all of the spoils, to God. The collective nation takes a vow. 
And you get the sense here that for the first time in the book of Bamidbar, the nation is really taking their fate into their own hands. There are two people missing from this story. Moshe is missing completely. He's not mentioned at all. And God is referenced, but only as an object of their prayer slash vow. In other words, they are standing alone at this moment. They don't know who's actually helping them, but they take responsibility for themselves. The way they do it is in the form of a vow. To my mind, this episode signals a critical moment in the character development, so to speak, of the nation, parallel to the character development that we talked about before of Yaakov and Hana. Meaning that the vow expresses some type of transformation. It's an outward expression of some kind of internal move or development. Exactly. And God's response is that he listens to Israel. God gives them victory in battle and they fulfill their vow. And the place is called Chorma, which means that they consecrate all of the spoils to God. And therefore, the takeaway is the vow did what for them? The vow makes them newly responsible for themselves and their own fate. It's an expression that they can take initiative in reaching out to God and saying, help us in a way they couldn't before. Almost every other time in the book of Bamidbar, when they need help, they turn to Moshe and say, you pray for us. Right. You got to help us out here. We're in trouble. And here you're saying the vow it's more than a prayer. It's almost like saying, I'm ready to change. I'm ready to become something else. And that something else is actually deserving of God's help and support. Right. It's on the one hand, simply a prayer. But yes, I think you're right. The vow signifies more than a prayer here. It's a prayer that comes at a critical moment of national change and national transformation. So I told you I was going to put you on the spot with this. And he's smiling right now, but he wasn't smiling before. Maybe now he's happy. So what you've described and I pushed back on, I was in the role of the curmudgeonly rabbinic posek worrying about the violation of vows. But basically that vows are a way to concretely carve some type of new path towards holiness, towards growth, towards increased relationship with God, a sense that what I have right now is somehow insufficient and I want to grow. I want to do more. I want to bring more holiness, more obligation, more concrete expression. And the Torah gives us this opportunity, right? It gives us opportunity in taking vows to bring extra sacrifices to the temple. It gives us the opportunity to make all sorts of things prohibited that are permitted to us, right? We have that power. We can make new biblically empowered rules for ourselves. And along come the sages and say, hey, you got to be careful. This is dynamite that you're playing with. Often people make decisions rashly. They have a desire to do something big in that hot moment, as I spoke about before. So here we are today leading our religious lives with, I would argue here, the institutional response is be careful of innovation. You know, if your grandfather didn't do it, you don't need to do it. If the Rosh Hashiva didn't do it, maybe you shouldn't be doing it, right? That change is responded to in one of two ways. One is, who are you to make up new rules? Better people than you didn't do it. You don't need to do it. And be careful because you start making up new stuff. And next thing you know, mixed dancing. That's always the example people have to give. <laughs> So what is your take today on where we are with this question of 
creating space for individuals to create new things, to grow in their own way as part of our system. So I wouldn't discourage you for being curmudgeonly, and I think being curmudgeonly is an important impulse in religious life. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. I'm curmudgeonly in all areas of life. I just want to be clear, it's just in, sometimes in religion it's good. But what this example in Bamidbar suggests is that even if we see a danger in and discourage as a result taking vows on an individual level, we can encourage this kind of vow impulse on a communal level. Now, I don't mean that we take a vow as an entire community, even though in theory that's possible, but communities can use this example to build new practices, to take on new commitments. And I think when the community does it, obviously when they're led by a responsible leader and they feel a genuine need to come together and take on a new practice or develop a new restriction, I think that's a much less dangerous phenomenon and one that has a much greater ability to answer the unique needs of our time, which is, of course, what vows are all about. Do you have any examples of behaviors or areas that you would love to see communities use this power to not just rely on the given system, but to innovate? Look, we've innovated in all sorts of ways in the modern Jewish world. We've innovated certain practices that respond to the needs of our time. We've created new rituals around, for example, Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzma'ut that we just celebrated a few weeks ago. We have done this in certain ways, and I think that it's important to think about other ways that we can do it not necessarily on a national level, but even just on the level of a particular community. Well, I'll tell you the example that comes to mind. Wouldn't it be nice if we could make a serious commitment not to use certain forms of speech with one another? You know, an example that just came to mind, and this is not really much of a community, my daughter's B'nai Akiva Shevet. That's they, a community. I, I guess it's a community of sorts. They're 14. They're very migubash, as we say in Hebrew. They're really very tight-knit group. And they saw that they were spending too much time on their cell phones when they were together. And they said, you know what? We don't really want to be on our cell phones when we're off on a hike somewhere. We're all going to leave our cell phones home. That was a group decision, <laughs> which was made entirely without adult supervision or encouragement. Which is probably why they might actually stick to it. Right. There's just an interesting example of a kind of group decision of what for I think for most kids nowadays is a pretty severe limitation on their mode of self-expression interaction with the world, which seems to occur only through the screen of their cell phones. Those are the kinds of things that I think people should be encouraged to think about specifically on a communal level, which, as you said, ensures that they will actually follow the restriction, and also creates a much broader kind of cascade effect. Look, I think that what you're pointing to, and I still like my example of speech, maybe wants to follow up with that, when we could really use the way people speak about the people they disagree with has reached a level that is profoundly disturbing. It'd be lovely if everyone could agree to just stop referring to people they disagree with as enemies and adversaries and other sorts of hateful ways. Uh, let me stop you there. I think that's so laudatory and so necessary. And what Aneda encourages us to do is not just kind of a vague, let's talk to each other more nicely, but actually thinking about very specific kinds of phrases and kinds of references that we agree as a community, as a nation maybe, not to use anymore. Yeah, I think that what we're coming to, and maybe this is my own personal frustration, that for many of us, particularly for those of us who self-define as orthodox or committed to the system, 
we have gotten very narrow in basically thinking that the system will answer any question we have. If the system says it's okay, it's okay. The system says it's not okay, it's not okay. And I think this whole language of vows, it points us in the direction of the realization that that just can't always be the case, that situations are different, people are different, and all of us at different points may need to initiate or develop tweaks or additions or subtractions because we're not all the same. And the same way for one person, two glasses of wine is no problem. And for somebody else, two glasses of wine leads them down a road of very destructive behavior. And that person says, I'll be a Nazir. Where the first one says, I don't need to be a Nazir. And I'm just wondering again, whether we need to surface, maybe not the practice of vows, I realize I'm probably too Talmudic to do that, but to re-emphasize the space and necessity of individuals and communities realizing that the system does not respond to every problem and the system does not necessarily offer a solution to every problem. Right. And vows are a template really for the kind of innovation that maybe our religious lives need nowadays. Okay, so you heard it here first, everybody. Rabbi Reifman agrees with everything I said, and that's something important that you should share out there. I feel more curmudgeonly already. Okay, it worked. So, on that wonderful note, first of all, thank you very, very much, Daniel, for returning to putting yourself in this crucible a second time. We are very, very appreciative of your content and your insight, and we are certainly appreciative that you have taken the time to listen, and we appreciate all of you listening each time, and please tell your friends to listen, and let's grow this community of Pardes, Parsha podcast listeners, and really I think is a chance for us to begin to share a broader conversation about Torah and how it relates to us in our lives. So on that note, Daniel, anything else to add? A final sentence? You're good? I'm good. I'm good. It's always a pleasure to be here too. Okay. Thank you. So on that note, we look forward to you joining us in the future and thank you for joining us this time. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.